Well, Happy New Year, everyone. My name is Mark, one of the pastors here at Door Creek, part of the teaching team. And so if you're a guest here, we're really glad that you've joined us. And uh, I just want to uh, remind us that something really important is going on in the life of our middle school and high school students. We have 170 plus students and leaders up in Green Bay at this annual youth conference. And it brings together literally thousands of students from across the state. And so let's just be praying as we think about uh, our students being away and hearing some powerful messages and having some great times of interaction. So thanks for praying for our students, for those of you who serve in our children's and student ministries, those of you who give, you know, that helps us really have excellent student ministries here that is really, really important in life for these kids that have just immense challenges and pressures. So exciting stuff, and we'll be hearing more and sharing more in the days ahead. So, you know, <clears throat> how's the diet going? <laughs> how many times have you worked out this week? Isn't it amazing how productive we are that first week of January? You know, it's that just kind of thing that we do. I'm not really sure why we call it res resolutions, because, you know, at the heart of that word is the word, the verb, resolve. That's a strong word. The reality is only about 60% of us now resolve anything at the beginning of the year. You know why? Because only about 8% of us ever get anything done. And those who fall off the wagon usually do so by like January 31st. Talk to your local owner of a fitness center. So maybe we should just call it New Year's wishes. I'm wishing. I'm hoping. So we're going, to, um, we're going to talk about healthy living. It's something that we think about. And the struggle is real when it comes to healthy living, right? Whether it's losing weight, working out, staying at it, right? Getting our financial life kind of fit, breaking those bad habits, working on this relationship, right? Trying to get in a better frame of mind. That's a struggle, and oftentimes we re-engage in the struggle of healthy living. And so in the next four weeks, we're going to talk about spiritual, relational, physical, and emotional health. Today, we start with spiritual health. And that spiritual health is really the foundation for all of health. So we're going to focus in on Jesus, the one who taught and modeled and gives us and sustains spiritual health. And what we're going to see is... Jesus' approach to spiritual health, the Bible's approach to spiritual health, is actually different than a lot of the things that we'll read today, like University of Kansas study on spiritual health comes up with seven key steps. Number one, explore your spiritual core by asking questions. Who am I? What is my purpose? What do I value most? Two, look for deeper meanings. Analyzing patterns will help you see that you have control over your destiny. Three, get it out. Express what's on your mind. Four, try yoga. Five, travel. I love that one. Travel to comforting places or somewhere new. It does wonders for your mind. Speaking of your mind, six, think positively. And this is a really interesting spin. Take time to meditate is the last one, but here's what you meditate on. Devote time to connecting with yourself. So we're gonna look at what Jesus taught about spiritual health in his Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5. 
So turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, first book of the New Testament, one of the Gospels. Gospels aren't so much a biography as they are a portrait. And so we have Matthew's portrait, Matthew the tax collector, one of Jesus' disciples, who has written down and recorded the Sermon on the Mount, called so because he gave this teaching up on the mountain. In fact, the context of chapter 5 is the crowds have been pressing in around Jesus, right? He's this new guy who's got this amazing teaching, and he's like this miracle one uh, working guy. He can perform all kinds of healing miracles and more. And so people are flocking, and it says he withdraws, goes up the mountain, and his disciples gather around. So he's speaking to his disciples. And we read, starting in verse 3, these Beatitudes, Beatitudes because they all begin with that word blessed. Verse three, you there? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, or the gentle, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled, they will be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. And here's an outlier. We're not expecting this one. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So the Beatitudes begin with this word blessed. Think of the word happy and think of the concept of happiness that stems from God's approval. Fundamentally, it means approved by God. And so because we're approved by God, we find our happiness in that, in our relationship, God's pleasure over us. You notice there's a bookend, you probably didn't because we went through pretty quick, but look at the end of verse three, and then look at the end of verse 10, and you see the bookends. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven, those who are poor in spirit, those who are persecuted, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Whenever we see those bookends, those brackets, if you will, that's telling us that everything in between those two verses is describing people who belong to the kingdom of heaven, which is this very abstract concept. So let me help you move it out of a place in geography and some kind of rule like that to a person and a relationship with God's king, Jesus. So when you think about the kingdom of God, think about the king, God's king, Christ. This is saying all these characteristics describe those who have Christ as their king, who belong into his kingdom, or to switch the metaphor, who are part of God's family, right? So here's the disclaimer. Like we could do a great eight-week study on these eight beatitudes, but we got one week because we're talking about spiritual health. And so we're going to use these, and we're not going to get in as depth as I'd like us to, but we're going to see these are key markers of spiritual health. I know when we get our annual physical, we know there's markers, like 
we got to get on the scale. And that's saying something about our health, right? We, we get our blood pressure taken every time we go in. And if that first number is like 140, that's not a good marker, right? They take our, right, our pulse, all these different things. We, we're kind of tuned in to the markers of physical health. My hunch is not so much about spiritual health. And so the Beatitudes are going to be really a helpful framework to be thinking about, how am I doing? So when you just think about it, in your own mind, 1 to 10, spiritual health, where do you think you're at? You kind of remember that number. All right, so let's get into verse 3. Poor in spirit, there's the kingdom of heaven. Spiritually healthy followers of Jesus acknowledge their profound need, their spiritual poverty, if you will. So it's the poverty of spirit, this acknowledgement intellectually that I don't have anything to bring. I don't have this, this kind of spiritual bank account with all these spiritual assets that I offer up to God whereby he goes, that's awesome. You're in, dude. It's good work. No, I've declared spiritual bankruptcy. It's like the hymn. Nothing in my hands I bring, but to the cross of Christ I cling. Spiritual poverty. Paul teaches about this in Titus 3.5, the very beginning of the verse. He says, he saved us, God saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. So poverty in spirit is not beaten down yourself, the self-degradation that, that denies that we're created in the image of God. It's not about false humility that is nothing other than just pride dressed up. And it's seen perfectly in Jesus' story when he said two men went to the temple and prayed. One was this religious leader, a Pharisee, and he lifted his eyes to heaven. And one was a tax collector. In, in the eyes of the first century Jew, that meant a cheating sellout, a Jewish guy who bought his way to that position, and he's ripping off all his brothers and sisters. And, he, and that guy couldn't look up. This guy looked up to heaven, the religious leader said, God, thank you, I'm not like that scumbag. And Jesus said, this guy couldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven. And all he could do is cry out, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus said it was this guy with the poverty of spirit that went away from the temple justified, made right, in a right relationship with God. Poverty and spirit. So Christ followers have declared spiritual bankruptcy and understand that every day of our life, even though we've obtained the riches of God through Christ, apart from Christ, apart from God's grace, apart from the gifts he's given us, we're still in that same place. Spiritual poverty. This humble posture before God. Second, blessed are those who mourn, they will be comforted. Spiritually healthy Christ followers mourn over their sin. Mourning says there's something more than an intellectual awareness of our sin that we could name that sin. No, mourning is there's actually an emotional engagement response over what I have done. The Bible says there are actually two kinds of sorrows. Paul writes about this to the church in Corinth. He says there's a godly sorrow 
that leads to repentance, which is a change of mind that leads to a change of action that leads to life. Then he says, there is a worldly sorrow and that only leads to death. Why? Because what's not, what didn't happen after the sorrow? There's no repentance. There's no change. Here's the fundamental difference between godly and worldly sorrow. It's the object of our sorrow. When it's godly sorrow, we are sorrowful over our sin and all that Christ had to endure to suffer our punishment. When we're suffering over our worldly sorrow, our focus is in on the consequences and on me and how my life stinks right now because I've been found out. And now everybody thinks differently about me. And I'm so sad. My relationship with my spouse has changed. I lost my job, whatever it is. And we're sorrowful over the consequences of our sin, but not of our sin itself. Spiritually healthy people don't just know their sin. They mourn over their sin. Third, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Spiritually healthy followers of Jesus have their strength under control. There's this really great word picture behind the word here that Matthew uses for meek or gentle. And the word picture uh, comes from the stallion that would be captured up in the hills by the Roman legionaries and would be broken and trained to be this awesome, you know, horse for battle. Strength under control with all of its spirit and strength and courage and power yet brought under control of its rider. So the gentle nudge of the knee or of the heel or a syllable could take that stallion that's just racing at breakneck speed, 35 miles an hour, to a stop. Could withstand all the craziness of battle because his strength was under control. So meekness is not about weakness. And Jesus displays this strength under control. In fact, he says, uses it of himself. I am gentle and humble of heart. Same word, meek. And so when you think about Jesus, he's meek when his strength is under control through the whole trial and crucifixion when he could have said, game over, that's it. You guys are out. But he didn't, right? And yet, he was meek when he took the tables and turned them over and grabbed the whip in his go, get out of my father's house. Your corruption and your hypocrisy stink to high heaven. This is a house of prayer for all the nations. Peter gives us a negative example. Jesus is arrested in the garden, strength under control, not that day. He goes, oh man, I gotta save Jesus. Grabs his sword, Bam! He's trying to take Malchus's head off. He missed and gets his ear. That's not strength under control. Neither was Moses, who's described as the meekest man in the Old Testament, right? But remember what he did. His strength wasn't under control when he killed the Egyptian. Strength under control. Fourth, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, here's another mark of spiritual vitality and health. We have an insatiable appetite and drive to know what is right and to do what is right. 
Righteousness is holy living. Righteousness is living our lives like Jesus. Righteousness means doing the right thing. It's all about justice. And there is this hunger and thirst. So think about these God-given drives physically that we have. Hunger and thirst. Without those drives, what happens? That's right, good. We're gone. We're not living anymore. So this is key to spiritual life. We're taking in righteousness. God's righteousness, his word, his spirit, his grace, Christ. And then we're breathing it out. We're living it out in our lives. And there is this insatiable desire. The psalmist, David, speaks of this in Psalm 63. In fact, all of these beatitudes are rooted in the Old Testament. So, for example, Psalm 63, 1. Psalm of David, when he was where? In the desert. You, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. He probably was really thirsty this day. But he said, no, my true thirst is for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. Jesus will go on to teach about righteousness. And he'll give a warning that the righteousness that you're to be pursuing is not a showy, flashy righteousness that is all about building up your reputation and getting people to think of you better than you actually are. So he'll say this in chapter six, verse one, same sermon, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others. Nothing wrong with practicing your righteousness. Righteousness is to be practiced. But don't practice it in front of others to be seen. For them, for you, actually. Don't do that. Rather, I'll say in verse 33, seek first his kingdom, God's kingdom, and his righteousness. And all these things, and what he'd just been talking about before this verse was, all the things that we can worry about, our food, our clothing, and our future, and how's it all gonna go? He says, don't worry about that. Focus on Christ. Focus on his kingdom, his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Jesus declared to his disciples, John 6, 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. He satisfies. So we know physically what it means to be satisfied. We probably had one of those experiences, right, over Christmas, a great meal and great times around that meal. And it was like, oh, that was so good. You just like, nothing. it couldn't have got any better. We, we get that. And then we realize that when it comes to our spirit and our heart and our mind, there's so few times where we have that sense of, of fullness, of satisfaction, of contentment, of peace. This comes as we hunger and thirst for righteousness. Fifth, blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. Spiritually healthy people forgive. Forgive those who've wronged them, sending the pain away. Do you know this about the word forgive? The, the most used word in the New Testament, forgive, says, it has this idea, to send it away. To send it away. And it's one of the most important disciplines to protect our own heart from what the Bible calls a root of bitterness. What are we sending away? The pain, the hurt, the offense, 
the injustice. And we have to keep sending it away because it keeps coming back, whether it's through a circumstance or just seeing the person or the enemies just wanting us to go down that bitter path because that root of bitterness can grow into a tree of bitterness that's as big as a sequoia that consumes our life. And you know people like this, and maybe you are that person where every time you get together with them, you go back to that same injustice and that's all they can deal with and talk about it because the root of bitterness came because they didn't send it away. So when it comes to mercy giving, it's all about forgiveness and it's all about compassion. And Jesus says our inability to forgive actually doesn't just say that we're sick. It says we probably don't have spiritual life. Actually, Jesus doesn't use the word probably. Here's how he puts it. Matthew 6. So this is right at the end of, you know, the Lord's Prayer. As we pray, you know, forgive us even as we forgive, right, those who trespass our debtors, right? He says this, for if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive, if you do not extend mercy, others their sins, right? Your Father will not forgive your sins. Forgiven people forgive. And the mercy that we extend is not just forgiveness, but mercy is like compassion. And compassion is not just emotional empathy, but it is love in action. And so mercy is extending God's kindness in practical ways to people who are in misery, in hard circumstances. And John, Jesus' closest disciple, would write this, 1 John 3, verse 17, if anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech but with actions and in truth. And so, John is kind of heightening some awareness that we need to have, especially if you're like me. I grew up in the church. I've been in the church for decades. And you know what happens in the church? We got to kind of get this language thing going. It's like really weird for some people who like just became followers of Christ and they come into the church and they go, I don't get the lingo. What is this lingo that you're talking? And all of a sudden, we have this new vocabulary and we've learned a new language called Christianese. And it's full of these cliches. And we can say these little phrases and we think that we're good. We're healthy because we know the vocabulary. John says, don't get confused. Your spiritual health is not about your vocabulary. It's about your life about your obedience, how you live it out day to day. How are we doing? Three more. All right, blessed are the pure in heart, number six, they will see God. Spiritually healthy people have a pure heart, which means there's no pollutants. There are no rivals. It's wholehearted, loyal devotion to one. Single-minded single focus devotion to God. And the reward is see God. We'll talk about that in a second. This uh, beatitude finds its origin in Psalm 24. Verse three, who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart. 
who does not trust in an idol. See, there's, there's, there's nothing else in his heart that he's worshiping and trusting. No idols or swear by a false god. Spiritually healthy people don't have spiritual plaque, pure hearts. There's nothing else in the mix. And the danger is, in this whole area, I know who Jesus is. I'm all in with Jesus. But we have a little Jesus plus thing going on. But you know this pill, this, this alcohol, this, you know, it, yeah, I, but it's just for me. And this, you know, it just helps me relax in front of the computer. I add a little bit to it. Or you know, this money makes me feel a lot more relaxed about my, and confident about my future. And it's a little Jesus plus. And what we, what we forget is, well, we, we go, well, I got Jesus. I'm all good with Jesus. And we're forgetting the pluses that destroy and ruin our spiritual vitality and health. So David wrote, Create in me a pure heart, O God. Renew a right spirit, a steadfast spirit within me. Psalm 51. So what does it mean to see God? The pure in heart, fully devoted. There's nothing getting in our way to seeing God, so we see more of God and his beauty. I think that's part of it. And then John kind of unpacks and makes an interesting connection. Check this out in 1 John chapter 3. Dear friends, now we are children of God. And what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, when he comes back, we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. Huh. So I wasn't thinking about that connection, but I think what John's saying here is when we see God, it's because we're becoming more like God. And so we see more of Christ, who is fully God, in our lives through the purity of our heart devotion, focused singly on Christ, on our triune God. Seventh, blessed are the peacemakers, that we call the children of God. We're mimicking our Father. Spiritually healthy followers of Christ pursue peace as far as it depends on us. I love Romans 12, verse 18. Paul says about peacemaking, if it's possible as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. What does that verse mean? Sometimes it's not possible. Why? Because it depends on not just you, but both, Right? But we're to be peacemakers. He's not saying, blessed are the peaceful, the serene, content, always happy people. No, blessed are the peacemakers, the peacemakers. Not the appeasers, not the conflict avoiders, the peacemakers. And all these other beatitudes, the poverty and humility of spirit, the sorrow over sin, the gentleness, right, strength under control, the pursuing of righteousness, the extending of mercy, all contribute to peacemaking. And so there's an implicit warning that says we are sick and will make others in the body of Christ sick as we're connected vitally to each other. If we traffic in gossip and slander, bringing division, that almost always distracts the church from the mission. 
Whenever there's division, what I notice is we turn inward, we're focused here, and we lose our mission of making disciples of all the nations, seeking people who are lost without Christ. So peacemaking deals with the horizontal relationships with each other. But peacemakers are also pointing people to Christ, the Prince of Peace, and helping them find peace with God and having that, the peace of God. Last one, and this is a surprise. We're always looking for surprises. This one, like, which one of these doesn't fit? We go, number eight, this doesn't fit. This sounds more like a curse. Blessed are the persecuted? Matthew, are you sure you heard that right? Didn't he say cursed are the persecuted? Because that's what it sure feels like when we go through it. Blessed are the persecuted, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He'll go on to say, rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great. Spiritually, Healthy followers of Christ think differently about hard times. Think differently about suffering. Think differently about persecution. Think differently about insults and injustices and the things that we're wrestling with right now. It reminds us of Jesus' own brother, James, who said this in chapter one of his letter. Consider it pure joy. So consider means have this attitude. Pure joy, my brothers and sisters, when, when the trials are over. Oh, no, that's not what I said. Whenever you face trials of many kinds. Why? Because you know that the testing your faith produces perseverance. Why joy? Because the trial and the suffering is something that God has allowed into our life and it's an invitation to the gym to build spiritual faith and muscle, perseverance, that, that shapes us to be more like Christ, mature and complete like Christ. We think, we think suffering, persecution, oh, by the way, he's qualified what he's talking about. He say, I'm not talking about suffering, persecution for being a big, fat-headed, proud, arrogant jerk who won't forgive, who's always right, who is not self-aware, who's totally unfiltered. I'm not talking about you're blessed. I'm talking about those who are persecuted for righteousness, for living rightly before God and others, for, for my sake, for Christ. Great is your reward. And, and here's the lie that we'll believe, because it's hard when we're in this trial. There's a reason James says you gotta consider this because it's not the intuitive consideration. The intuitive consideration is, uh uh-oh, shoot, I screwed up and now I'm getting it and God's punishing me. That is a lie from the pit of hell. Jesus paid our punishment. Jesus is allowing suffering for our good and his glory. And so it drives us to Christ. It makes us worship Christ even more for the sufferings he endured for us. And we understand we're in the gym and we're developing perseverance, which is the word endurance, which is the word to stay under it. And we're under the weight when everything we want to do is go, get out of here. God, get it out of here. But through faith, believing that our reward is great in this persecution and those persecuting us, wherever it is, in our family, in our community, at school, in the workplace, 
in the court system, systemic injustice, wherever it is, that, that it doesn't change the end of the story. And I'm living the dot right now, and I'm trusting in the line when Jesus comes back and makes all things new. And so I'm going to rejoice. I'm going to choose to do that because my reward is great, and, and it's working out in my life today. And this is really hard stuff, how we think. So Bonhoeffer, in his great book on discipleship, says, well, it's the badge of true discipleship. It's the badge. Timothy is told by Paul in 2 Timothy, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ, Jesus, will be persecuted. So let's bring it home. So um, throughout this week, there are hours and hours in the study in what I would call a very familiar passage. I remember memorizing these uh, verses when I was 16 up in the foothills of my dad's little village in Switzerland. I've known these verses. I've heard my pastor back in Wheaton preach a whole eight-week, told you, eight-week series on it. I, I mean, these are familiar, familiar words. And what, what happened, though, as I was going through this with this grid of spiritual health is um, where I started the week and where I ended the week was really different. Like, I don't know. Remember when I asked you what your number was? Anybody want to change that number? I did. Like, wow. Wow. And it was very humbling. Actually, it was a little depressing. So here I am, your pastor, coming out of this going, I'm not as healthy as I thought I was. And so you're like, what do you do? And I realized there was grace in that kind of aha moment. Because what happened was, it brought me to the very place that Jesus began. Where does he begin? Blessed are the poor, where? In spirit. And so before we get depressed, before we go, I'm gonna make some resolutions and I'm gonna get healthier this year, is you just go, you just go all the way back to the beginning and you think about that tax collector who couldn't lift his head and we go, God, have mercy on me. Christ, son of David, have mercy on me, a sinner. And that's a beautiful place to start as we think about being healthy spiritually 2020. So remember when you go to the doctors and maybe it's the first time you've been to this doctor and you know, you check in and do the insurance thing and then they hand you a clipboard with like four pages of, right? You've been there. So I, and it's all these questions, right? You gotta answer. So I'm gonna give you a clipboard. It's not four pages, um, but a bunch of questions that come right out of this. To again, kind of help, what, it, what truly is that number? So the first thing I wanna say is, you know, I'll talk about your birth date. Put your birth date down. So we can't have a conversation about spiritual health until we understand, apart from God's grace and receiving it through faith in Christ alone, we are what the Bible says, dead in our sins. We're not alive yet. We don't have spiritual heartbeats. So the question at the very beginning is, 
What is your spiritual birthday? Or it could be put this way. Have you ever in your life said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner? Have you acknowledged your sin and need of Christ? That's where we start. Ready for some other questions? Do I mourn over my sin? Is there actually emotional engagement? Not just intellectual, oops, that wasn't right. Emotional engagement. So questions like, what's the last time I confessed a sin? What, what was that? Do I confess it like generally or do I know the specifics of it? Do I excuse my sin, rename my sin, bury my sin? Is it about godly sorrow or worldly sorrow? About strength and gentleness that's under control. Is it under control? How's the anger thing going in my life? How about my appetite? Do you have a spiritual appetite for God's word, for living God's word? Do you have a plan this 2020 to take in, a feeding plan to take in God's word? Here's my challenge. 15 minutes, three times a week. Because if I told you 15 minutes... Like every day, you're gonna get to Wednesday and go, oh man, and you quit. Three times a week, 15 minutes this, this month. Five minutes to read the word, five minutes to reflect on the word, five minutes to pray. Thanking God, praising God, confessing, and letting him know what's on your heart. The Version Bible app, if you don't know about it, is awesome. Get it on your phone. It'll really give you more traction in taking in God's word that we might live God's word. Is there anyone that I need to forgive that I honestly don't think I can forgive? You know maybe the story of Corey Ten Boom, the hiding place. Our family had an opportunity to go to Harlem not New York, the Netherlands, and see the Ten Boom House where they hid the Jews in their city, transporting them out of the country away from the Nazis. They got found out. She and her sister got dragged off to a concentration camp, and she went through unbelievable horrors. Her sister actually dies in the prison camp before the war was over and she was released. She went on to have this incredible ministry, worldwide ministry. I remember meeting her back in the day and just this great woman. And she tells the story in her book about being in Munich, Germany and talking about God's forgiveness and the power of the gospel. And she notices a man in the crowd was one of her guards. She couldn't forget what he looked like because she was saying he was like one of the first guards that we met when we had to strip and go into the showers and it was so humiliating and it just brought back all this pain and all this bitterness and all this anger and he walks up to her after her message and he says, oh, what you said is so true and isn't it unbelievable that God would forgive me? And he says, Fraulein, he, wa he wants to shake her hands. So let me, let me read you this part as she talks about that very scene. I, who had preached so often to the people the need to forgive, kept my hand at my side. Even as the angry, vengeful thoughts boiled through me, I saw the sin of them. 
Jesus Christ had died for this man, was I going to ask for more? Lord Jesus, I prayed, forgive me and help me to forgive him. I tried to smile. I struggled to raise my hand. I could not. I felt nothing, not the slightest spark of warmth or charity. And so again, I breathed a silent prayer. Jesus, I cannot forgive him. Give me your forgiveness. As I took his hand, the most incredible thing happened. From my shoulder, along my arm, and through my hand, a current seemed to pass from me to him, while into my heart sprang a love from this stranger that almost overwhelmed me. Yeah, I know you can't. I know you can't, but you must. For your own spiritual health, to show that you are someone who's been forgiven, to free you from the bitterness. You can't do it, but Christ in you can. Do you need to make peace with someone? Do you need to share the good news of peace to someone that God's placed in your life? How do you consider your sufferings for Christ right now? Are they marked by joy, a quiet confidence? To be sure, we will wrestle in this fight of faith. But is it more about my complaining? More about reminding God how unfair it all is? Or like the apostles, do I rejoice that I was counted worthy to suffer for him? Is it my faith that's growing stronger? Or my negativity and pessimism? So what do we do? We turn to Jesus, the one who lived it, the one who gives it, the one who sustains our spiritual health, the one who gives us his spirit, the one who's given us his word, the one who's given us each other, and we cling to Christ. And we find life and strength sufficient for the day. So there's something that we talk about, not enough, because probably most of you go, oh yeah, I kind of remember that. But there's the three big G's that we talk about that really is at the heart of responding to the grace of God that is actually gonna put you on a very simple thing to think through about growing spiritually. We talk about gathering on the weekend, not a weekend. And that may mean when we're traveling, we're just gonna log on and we're gonna listen to it. And that's great. But we don't say, church is an option in my life. No, we hunger and thirst for righteousness and there's something that happens here together that doesn't actually happen on our own. And so that's a priority. We gather on the weekend. We grow in a group to become more like Christ as we do life together. Man, this is awesome what's happening right here. But it's so different from what happens later this week when you get in your group and we go from rows to a circle and we talk about this passage and we talk about life on life like the guys group that I'm in was doing last Friday. And I'm learning a ton. And my eyes are open and I'm encouraged. I'm strengthened. I'm held accountable. We pray for each other. We serve together. You gotta get in a group. It's not meant, he didn't, it didn't say at the beginning of chapter five. And so as the crowd pressed in against him. He called Peter. He said, Peter, you need to hear this. I got something for you about your... He, he called them all together. It's our responsibility, but trust me, he's placed us in a body, in a family. We need each other to grow and, and, and maintain spiritual health. And then finally, 
We got to give it back. So I remember when I was a kid in church, man, those services like this one, so long. What are you going to do as a kid? You know, no drawn for my Swiss parents. You couldn't do that. But I figured out I had a, a watch with a second hand. I could see how long I could hold my breath. <laughs> I got pretty good. And man, what I know is, you know, after about a minute, some people like 10, what happens? We got to breathe. We got to exhale. And spiritual health is not just about taking it in. It's about giving it back. We're breathing in his word. We're breathing it back. We're breathing in worship together, but we're giving it back to God and to each other. We're doing that, taking it in in our groups, giving it back as we serve. We're doing it as we give of ourselves like Christ, our time, our talents, the good news, our resources. We're in, out, in, out, spiritual health. God help us. Father God, we bless you for your word. And even as it's been a scalpel in your hand and uh, your word has been like that two-edged sword going to the very dividing points of our hearts, our attitudes, our motivations, and it just calls us up short. And we thank you that you are not asking us to do better. You're asking us to lean into you and to trust you and to love you and to follow you. And so we pray that these beautiful marks of health in the life of a believer would be more a part of our lives, our marriages, our families, our ministries, this church, the churches in our city, Lord. For your honor and glory as we seek to be salt and light as you reminded us that we are. In Christ's name, God's people said, Amen.